The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Today I come to the last of messages in a loosely organized series I've brought you over several months on the subject of prayer. Some of you would look at the passage, perhaps if you'd looked ahead at the text I'm going to read, you'd say, wait a minute, Pastor, don't you get it? The sanctuary has poinsettias in it. It's December. Where's Christmas? This is the Garden of Gethsemane you're about to read about. You're about four months off, Pastor. Get with it. Well, I know that it may seem out of sync to you, but as we complete these thoughts on prayer, I really felt that observing Jesus in his most extreme moment of prayer was the place to conclude. So I trust you'll believe me that I'll maybe on a little more seasonal topic next, next week, but... Uh, This is our important topic for today. I read from Matthew, chapter 26, beginning at verse 36. Jesus went with the disciples to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep. And take your rest later on. Behold, the hour is at hand that the Son of Man is betrayed to the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Father, help us to glimpse in this sacred window what you want us to hear and know from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. There certainly are those persons in the world of what we call biblical criticism or biblical scholarship, besides those who are just critics from the wider society without biblical backgrounds, who would say to us that when the disciples of Jesus wrote their Gospels, 
they were doing a kind of a propaganda job inflating the image and reputation of this Galilean carpenter, trying to build him up, make him larger into something he really was not, trying to be his publicity agents in a way to actually have us believe that he came from God. Well, I must ask those people, if you were aiming to artificially construct a reputation for Jesus of Nazareth, and you wanted to emphasize the positive and build him up in every way you possibly could, why on earth would you write these words that I have just read? Why would you speak of him under sore depression and overcome by anguish and praying as if to avoid his cross? I would think this might be one chapter or part of a chapter that any skilled publicity agent would have known to leave out showing Jesus in this light. When I read about Gethsemane any time, I always feel like I am spying into some private chamber of the Lord, that I'm looking on things that should be His alone and and I shouldn't be there. And there's a sense in which I feel, as other authors have said, the, we are bid to take the shoes off our feet, for this is holy ground. We're allowed to witness it because God, by His Spirit, stirred up the memories of disciples who were pretty sleepy when it was going on, although they must have put bits and pieces together as they discussed it later. But here we see, as our lessons in God-centered prayer draw to a close, God in flesh praying to God Most High. And what we witness and what we listen to is simply stunning. In the first place, a simple lesson that is here is that prayer is essential when life and its crisis overwhelms you. The theme is simply this. If Jesus, the Son of God, had to turn to prayer in a moment of supreme crisis, where better would you be able to go when life crashes down in some form upon your head. Matthew 26, 37 says, as he entered this olive grove where apparently they were camping out perhaps for that week, spending the nights, it was a warm enough climate, you could sleep outdoors, and there in a shady grove a little bit outside the city was a a well-protected, rather hidden place. And as he entered there, The text says very ominously, he began to be sorrowful and troubled to the point of death. Now, if you behold what Jesus was doing earlier on that day, he didn't seem like somebody overwhelmed or out of control or that anything was really wrong. He had brought order and uh, a schedule, in a sense, to their day, arranging a dinner, saying, you go here and buy this, you go here and arrange the room for us, and Then there he was in the upper room washing their feet and giving them a lesson, teaching them other things, passing the bread and the cup, telling them that this was a new covenant and so on. It all seemed like a very well-ordered thing. My family was involved, as many of you know, in a wedding just uh, two weeks ago, and and people say, how did it go? (laughs) I never know exactly what to say. Well, they got married, I could tell you that. And and the preacher didn't miss his lines. Uh, So I guess it went well. Well, we could say, well, how did the Last Supper go? 
Well, it went exactly according to God's plan. And Jesus seemed to be absolutely in control of everything. But now he comes, and there are very intense words in the original language used here to describe his state of mind, words that mean things like bewildered, out of his mind, entirely stunned. And we see that there's an emotional but more a spiritual tidal wave sweeping over Jesus when he tells his friends, I am overwhelmed with sorrow. He has not stopped being the Son of God, the preexistent one from all eternity, but he was God in true flesh. That's what this Christmas season is about. If you think this text is somehow out of sync, here's the ultimate joining of the Godhood of God and the manhood of man in a way that is hard to believe that Jesus could be in this condition. True humanity was here. Luke, when he tells his account, this is where he talks about great sweat being on the brow of Jesus. So intense was the struggle of prayer that Luke says it was like it were great gobs of blood. Luke was a physician. I don't think he threw a term like that around without some understanding. And all the physicians have speculated over the years, did he mean that actually it's something that I guess there is a known phenomenon that small capillaries under the skin under very intense crisis can can actually be under such pressure that you bleed a bit into your skin and the, the blood mingles with your sweat. I can't certify that that's what happened, but it sounds like it makes sense. Here's an incredible unhinging, we would say, of someone up to now who has been completely composed and organized. Maybe you've tasted something like this. Maybe somebody's hearing me who's actually in the midst of something like this. Some relationship has had a big smash up, maybe for a long time. Some financial problem is really ready to just about crush you and send you into bankruptcy. Something has brought you perhaps to your break point, maybe the loss of a spouse or some real crisis within your family. You know, in the Apostles' Creed, we say that phrase, Christ descended into hell. I don't know how many dozen times I've been asked about that. What does that mean, Pastor? People picture it in sort of a crude literalism that he in the time that he was in the grave, his spirit actually entered some underworld place called hell. I don't think that's it at all, nor do most theologians of the past. It seems to say something much deeper than that, that Jesus in his experience, Calvin said it was on the cross that he entered hell, when he became the bearer of all our sins, when he was made to be sin. That's what the Bible says. He had to be sin for us who never sinned so that we could be made into something that we never were, the righteousness of God. And I think that's what he was staring at now. He was looking into a foul, sulfurous, burning chasm of the sins of mankind, and he saw surrounding that cavern something like the wrath of God, the righteous, perfect holy God. And he said, I have to go there and stand in the midst of all that. No wonder he was just about insane with 
amazement at what was before him. It wasn't physical death that Jesus feared, not even this awful means of physical death that the Romans had perfected. They didn't invent crucifixion, by the way. We, we trace it back, and nobody's quite sure where it came from. There were other cultures that practiced it, but the Romans seemed to kind of carry it to its ultimate height. They conducted a crucifixion in such a way as to prolong the agony in any way that they possibly could to make the person die as slowly and as painfully and with as much shame as they could bring upon that person. It wasn't even that. Jesus had enough courage for that. There were martyrs of the Christian church who faced the flame with, with a smile on their face and a song in their heart. He wasn't afraid to die. But here he was being told he had to be the bearer. What, what if it was just the bearer of all our sins? So I don't know how many of us there are here, 700 or so in this room. The bearer of 700 packages of sin. Could you bear that? And of course it wasn't 700, was it? It was billions of sinners that Jesus died for. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield was a southern theologian with a dignified name, B.B. Warfield, we call him. A century ago, here's what he said. Christ, he said, is neither a humanized God or a deified man. He is all that God is and all that man is. Therefore, he's the only one upon whose mighty arm we can rest and whose perfect sympathy in suffering we can appeal to. And Warfield quoted from Hebrews 2.17, this text from the, from the book of Hebrews. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in service to God. And because he himself suffered and was so tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. You might say, well, his... His burden of becoming sin for the whole world of those who would believe in him was so great and so unique. How can he help me? He can help you because he's God, first of all, and secondly, because he was there in a worse pit than you will ever, ever, ever be in the worst thing you can think of in your life. This means that Christ endured what we're seeing here for you and for me at those times when we are tempted to give up. The times when we say, I feel so bad I could just die. If you ever get there, can you remember him who was there first? And him who has the resources of God himself to be there with you in the midst of that? But secondly today, I believe Matthew 26 teaches us our main theme for that gives this message a title, how to pray when the answer is the problem. As I was thinking about it this past week, this is a very broad generalization I'm going to make in a moment, but I think I've talked with you about prayer in at least three different sort of modes or categories. There's a kind of prayer that is not at all helpful, but Many, many people practice it, and I've condemned it and spoken about it several times, several ways. That is the prayer that I call vending machine prayer. 
where we treat God as, as a place to give our order. I need this, God. You know how badly I need it. You know how much I deserve it, even though I haven't always been good. So would you please send A, B, C, D? If you don't want to call it vending machines, a little old-fashioned, I guess I was not born in the computer era, but you can call it computer ordering prayer. You know how today you, you call up Amazon or you call up somebody and you expect the package on your porch by Thursday, that is if somebody doesn't get there first and swipe it. But uh, vending machine prayer, absolutely not at all the prayer that is taught in Scripture. We, it's a device by human beings who think they can manipulate God or make a bargain with God or put in their order and God should fulfill it. Well, I, I won't say any more in kind of condemnation of that. But secondly, is a mode of prayer that is certainly better than the first. And many times it, it is perfectly commendable. And that is when we come to God in a sense when, in prayer and we don't even know exactly what to pray for. We kind of have a blank slate in our hands and we say, God, here's my problem. Here's my situation. I'm not sure what I need. Would you help me? Would you show me, direct me as I read your word, speak by your Holy Spirit, give me a sense of peace or direction so that I would know what I'm supposed to do? I really don't know. I'm not sure. That kind of prayer is perfectly legitimate. But then there's this third mode that we're here today, seeing Jesus pray. And this is very different because, you see, he's praying when he knows completely and in great detail what it is he's supposed to do. And there are times when we know that, at least if we're honest. We've read the Word of God. You know, we're in a difficult marriage, and, you know, maybe it's two years after the wedding, and things are not quite so smooth as we thought they would be, and you think, maybe I need to leave this guy. I don't think I love him anymore. I better leave. What does God want me to do? Well, the Scripture will tell you what God wants you to do. Cling to your husband. Submit to your husband and pray that he will learn to submit to you and lead you in a way that God wants him to. But don't just walk out at the first note of trouble. You see, what this is about is when you know what the answer is, but the answer seems to be the problem and your will cannot take it on. I was a great fan of Charlie Schultz and the Peanuts cartoons. Still look at it most times in the paper, even though it's maybe a little passe today. But, uh, you know, here was Linus. Linus was the great theologian among the Peanuts characters. He would always come up with something theological. So one time they showed Linus in the first frame, and he's kind of holding his hands in prayer. Then the next frame, he's kind of got his hands this way. Then the last frame, he's got his hands down like this. And he turns to Lucy, his sister, the skeptic and critic, the psychiatrist, and he says to Lucy, I've made a great theological discovery. If you hold your hands upside down, you will get the opposite of what you prayed for. (laughs) Well, I don't know whether that's true or not. It is amusing. But don't we often feel like we're getting the opposite of what we prayed for? God, I prayed for this and you let this happen? This can't be your will. I look for something completely different. God, this can't be it. Let me send my order back and send me a better item, different color or something. Well, there are times when indeed God answers. And we even sense that he's answering. And we even read in his word that that his word is resonant with the answer, but we don't want the answer. 
We want another opinion. We want something completely different that's more favorable, more flavorful than what God appears to be giving. Well, you know, people are often puzzled by why did Jesus pray three times when he was here in the garden? And what I'm going to say to you, you may not agree with, but I had it pointed out to me not so many years ago, actually, after I'd read this text many, many times. And it seems like he asks the same thing three times. And it was pointed out to me, no, he really didn't exactly ask the same thing three times. There's a fair amount of difference between what he asked the first time and what he prayed in the second request. As Jesus goes to the Father this first time, he says, Father, if it be possible, may this cup be taken from me. Now, if your English teacher in eighth grade or wherever asked you to diagram the sentence, I believe that English teachers, if you don't agree with me, don't say so right now, but you can tell me later. But I think the main clause of that sentence is, the main thrust is, may this cup be taken from me. He was praying for the cup to be taken away, the the whole cross and, and everything involved. And sure, he conditioned it, if it be possible, but the main thrust was, take the cup away. It didn't come as a demand, but it was phrased as an inquiry, seeking confirmation. Can you take this away? Would you please take this away? Well, if you read the second thing that Jesus prayed when he knew what the answer was, it seems that the second uh, time that begins in verse 42, there's a different thrust and a different tone. My father if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. I believe the main thrust of that sentence is, your will be done. The rest of it is a conditional statement coming to the main thrust, your will be done. He has moved. He's saying, I do see what your answer is, Father. I do understand what's before me. I'm still coming to terms with it, but I want your will to be done. Notice there's no mention of my will in that second time. And then in the third case, it says, it simply says, he came and said the same thing. I assume that means the same thing as he said the second time. And I would speculate to say that he was now resting in a surrender and an acceptance of the will of his Father. Your will be done. That kind of full surrender to the known will of God rarely comes without a genuine struggle. Why do we think that because we, we are Christians, because we call Jesus Lord, because we've accepted him as our Savior and try to walk in faith with him, that somehow everything's just going to roll nicely along from there? Jesus struggled in the agony of his blood to accept the will of his Father with whom he was one person. What does that say about us? Can we think that accepting the will of God, even when we know it, is going to be as easy as falling out of bed or taking two steps across the room? No. At times, it's going to be very hard, and we're really going to struggle with it. And yet, look at the end of this passage as Jesus comes to them after the third time of going to the Father, and he comes, and it seems like he's fully in command again. He says, okay, men, you've had your time to rest, and you'll have more later on. Stand up. Let's be going. My betrayer's here. Wow. 
You know, he, he's just right back in charge again. Once he had said, Lord, my main request now is your will be done. He had done something amazing. He had learned obedience to his father. Hebrews 5, 7 to 8, I bring alongside this in closing as a parallel important text. I studied Hebrews a lot with you many years ago, quite a few years ago when we went through that book. It's a difficult book. It has things in it that almost have you scratching your head. And one of them gathers around this passage, Hebrews 5, 7 and 8, as it explains how the God-man was acting Within a mystery, he was God, yet he was man. But it says this, quote, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. But then this sentence, which I think is an amazing sentence, Although he was a son, yet he learned obedience from what he suffered. I am content to know that I will never conquer that sentence with theological understanding. How does the Son of the highest God learn obedience? He did it because he was truly a man, and that's all I can say. He did it to show us that while we'll never learn it as an easy thing and we'll have our loud cries and tears and our wrestlings against what we know to be the will of God, Nevertheless, he learned it, and he can teach us the hard, arduous sometimes labor of obeying God and accepting the hard things. I look out, you know, I, I can almost take attendance on Sunday mornings because you folks all sit in the same places pretty much. Oh, there's some, oh, she's over there now. And I, I look into your lives to the extent that I know them. I don't know it for all of you, of course, but many of you I know, I can look and I can see, wow, there's a tragedy in that life. Whoa, look over there. That person is still dealing with hard, hard grief. There's a widow who's without her dear husband. There's a widower without his dear wife. There's someone who lost a child in a motorcycle accident. I, I, I look and I see all these things. And I know you've had to learn obedience to the will of God. It's not an easy thing. But think who is with us. Think who goes before us. Think who understood that obedience so much better that he can put his wonderful arm around us and bring us through. And that's not just a sentimental statement. There are times when we should pray and, and must pray, Lord, I don't know what to do. Help me. Show me what to do. That's a legitimate prayer. But once you believe you have found out what to do and this Word of God says, this is it, folks, then your prayer needs to be reach a point, as Jesus did, of learning obedience by saying, your will be done and meaning it and going forward in great faith. You need to learn to say, Father, by your grace, bend me, break me if you must, until I'm willing to surrender to you as your Son pioneered the way for me to follow and trust you 
no matter what. Let's pray together. Father, this awesome scene remains before us in this Christmas season, this Advent season. We sing the familiar carols. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. We romanticize it. At the very worst, we join a society that must have lost its mind because it now only knows how to call this season the holidays, meaningless. As we come to God become flesh, teach us, Lord, that Jesus truly went before us and he's there awaiting us in all our crises and all our struggles to come to grips with your will. Help us to surrender to it even in our imperfect faith. For Jesus' sake, amen.